You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear the totally true stories of a World War II veteran who could only rent a home in an upscale New Jersey neighborhood if he agreed to get this Bring a live goat with him. And then there's the story of the Baltimore Liquor Board, who, in an effort to apply the law equally to both genders, they required male go-go dancers to cover their breasts while performing. Or how about a woman who, in just one and a half years' time, she sat through, get this, 864 showings of the classic movie, The Sound of Music. Well, all those stories, the question of the day, today's retro sponsor, and so much more. It's all coming up next on today's edition of the Useless Information Retrocast. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information. Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well. And to those of you who are tuning in for the first time, let me extend a very warm welcome to you. Today, I'm excited to present a fantastic retrocast. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, these are some of the shorter stories that I stumble upon during my research for the full-length stories that I typically do. So without further ado, let's plunge right into today's collection of stories. On March 26th of 1927, 12-year-old Samuel F. Perkins Jr. took to the sky above the Dexter training grounds of the State Armory in Providence, Rhode Island. What was so unusual about his flight is that he was neither in an airplane nor a balloon. Instead, young Samuel was lifted by 21 kites. Now, if this was a Hollywood movie, Samuel would have been standing there holding on to all those kites. Then a strong gust of wind would suddenly blow in, and of course, he'd be taken aloft. But this was no accident. And that's because his father, that's Samuel Sr., he had planned well in advance for his son's flight. The stunt was part of a large kite exhibition being held at the training grounds. More than 200 kites in all shapes, colors, and sizes. They were flown by members of the Junior Achievement League. I should point out they're all boys. And this was claimed to be the first kite flying tournament ever staged in an eastern United States city. And it was the elder Perkins, who was an aeronautics pioneer, who instructed the young men in the making and flying of their kites. His rationale for having such a contest was his prediction that someday flying would become a safe and natural mode of travel, just as safe as driving a car was for his generation. Quote, a flyer must be able to judge strength and action of wind currents, 
Nothing is so instructive for that purpose as kite flying. Yet one must question his decision to have his son lifted by a bunch of kites high into the sky above the training grounds. Let me ask you this, would you risk such a thing? I certainly wouldn't. Well, it turns out this wasn't the first time that his son had taken to the sky. He had practiced being lifted by the high-flying kites numerous times before, although this would be the first public demonstration of this daring aerial feat. During test trials, the boy, who I should mention sat in a swing seat, he'd sometimes stay aloft for over half an hour. Well, an estimated 12,000 spectators looked on as young Samuel took flight. Defying death, he reached an altitude estimated at, how high do you think he went? 30 feet, or 9.144 meters. He then traveled horizontally for about 200 feet, or 61 meters, before he died. No, before he landed safely back on the ground. As for his dad's prediction of flying would someday become a safe and natural mode of transportation, he certainly was correct. But I can tell you as a person who has flown many times in an airplane, I feel little need to know anything about what the wind is doing. No need for kites. I just leave it all up to those who are piloting the aircraft. Back in my January podcast on the Newburyport Anti-Inflation Plan, I briefly mentioned that few new homes and apartment buildings were constructed during the Great Depression and World War II. So when the soldiers returned home after the war, they were flush with cash, but of course housing was in very short supply. Well, such a dilemma was facing veteran Harry Sheffers and his family of Allendale, New Jersey in December of 1946. They had been notified that they were to be evicted from their current home the following month, so they were urgently searching for a new place to live. But there was one complication that limited their search, and that was they owned a pet goat. Not exactly the kind of thing that one can take to an apartment building. But then, they spotted a listing in the local newspaper for a vacancy at 472 North Maple Avenue in nearby Ridgewood. This was an upscale neighborhood in the home. It was in great shape. But the landlord, that's Mrs. Jack Alsop, she had two requirements. The first was that due to the current housing shortage, she would only rent to a veteran. And second, the new tenants were required to bring, you know what, a coat with them. Bingo! Not only was he a vet, but the Sheffers owned a goat. I mean, what are the chances? As to why Mrs. Alsop required a goat, she explained that her son was in college and he was contemplating doing experiments that focused on the bacteria that was contained in the goat milk. But there was one minor problem with this whole plan. There was a question as to whether village regulations would allow a goat in a residential area. So Harry concluded there was only one way to find out for sure. He would need to attend a board of health meeting and question the legality of doing so. So at their evening meeting on Monday, December 16th of 1946, Harry stood up and he asked if he was allowed to have the goat. And at first the board members thought it was all a joke, but Harry clearly was serious in his questioning. Caught off guard, they said they'd look into the matter and get back to him. To their surprise, they learned that Mrs. Alsop really did require the tenants to have a goat. After talking with neighbors, it was concluded that while no one really wanted to have a goat living near their homes, 
they'd reluctantly tolerate the animal because Mr. Sheffers, after all, was a veteran. So the town issued the necessary permit and the Sheffers prepared to move into their new residence. But then Mrs. Alsop reneged on the offer. In fact, she had never, ever intended on renting the property in the first place. She explained, quote, I have no intentions of moving and I've known he couldn't have the house since last November. I told him I didn't think he'd be allowed to have it, but he went and applied to the zoning board without my knowledge and now they said he can have it. So, if she had no intention of ever renting the house out, why did she place the ad in the paper in the first place? Well, the answer is very simple. She wanted to get even with the local zoning board. You see, at the time, they were considering an application to build a furniture factory on the property right next to her residence. So, Mrs. Alsop, she decided to set up a second annoying business in the neighborhood. And just what was that second annoying business? It was a goat farm. Supposedly, Mrs. Alsop came up with a goat farm idea because neighbors had become outraged about five years earlier because she decided to keep a pet goat. And it was at that time she learned that there was no local ordinance forbidding the raising of goats in residential areas, and of course that served as the impetus for her crazy goat farm scheme. The reality is she never intended on renting out her house, nor did she ever expect anyone to reply to her unusual listing. She just wanted to annoy the planning board. When they denied the permit to build that furniture factory, Mrs. Alsop decided to drop the whole thing. But by this time, Harry Sheffers had already sought out the permit for the goat. He told the press, quote, Now she says she doesn't want any goats, and she claims her whole story is made of the laughing stock in the neighborhood. The funny part is, I don't want the goat either. All I want is a home. The owners of the Merritt House Restaurant and Nightclub in Dundalk, Maryland, were faced with a really big problem back in February of 1975. That is that they did virtually no business on Sunday nights. So they were desperate to find something unique to bring customers into the place. That's when a Washington area promoter named Nick Seminetta suggested something he had just tried a few weeks earlier at a nightclub in Camp Springs, Maryland. That is, he brought in male go-go dancers to entertain the ladies. He claimed that the response was overwhelming and suggested that Merritt House do the same. So on the evening of Sunday, February 16th of 1975, Merritt House imported one of Simonetta's male dancers, paid him $35, which is about $200 today for the performance, and he sold out the place. In fact, he proved so popular that the owners had to turn away customers at the door. Robert Kane, who was a co-owner of Merritt House, stated, quote, These women had a lot of fun Sunday. They weren't inhibited by their boyfriends or husbands. I even had some of my clothes ripped off. Now, the women may not have been inhibited by their significant others, but dozens of the men filed complaints with the Baltimore County Liquor Board. It's not that the men were upset with the male dancers. What they didn't like was that they weren't allowed into the club. Couples would show up at the door, but only the women were admitted. All the men were turned away, so they filed complaints claiming sexual discrimination. So after reviewing the regulations, Joseph J. Hess, he was the chairman of the liquor board, he determined there had been several violations. First, according to Hess, quote, 
Guys went in there with their wives last weekend and were told the wives could come in and they couldn't. You just can't do that. It's discrimination. Next, he pointed out that nightclub employees were forbidden from accepting any gift of money other than a, quote, bona fide tip. Hess determined that stuffing money into the dancer's bikini, that didn't qualify as a tip, and therefore it was forbidden. And lastly, state regulations required that all employees must wear clothing that, quote, conceals the entire nipple area and the entire lower breast. Clearly, this regulation was aimed at women, but Hess felt that if he didn't apply the rule to both men and women equally, the liquor board would be subject to charges of discrimination. His solution was quite simple, quote, he's gonna have to wear a bra or something. Merritt House co-owner Fabio Albanetti told the Baltimore Sun that he had no intention of sending the male dancers out in pasties. Quote, I guess I'll have to wear a tank top or something. Of course, the Baltimore Sun needed to send one of their ace reporters to the club the following Sunday to see what all the hullabaloo was about. And Donald Kimmelman, he was just the man to tackle this important problem. Women began lining up at 4 p.m. for the 8 o'clock show. All 214 tickets, that was the legal occupancy for the club, they were all sold out by 7 p.m. Anyone who arrived after that, they were told to come back for the second show at 11 p.m. This time men were admitted, but their entrance fee was $8 versus the $2 for the women. Now adjusted for inflation, that's $45.50 for the men versus $11.36 for the women. And then the show started. The Mad Hatter's band blasted out their rock tunes as each of the four dancers individually took to the stage, each one typically dancing through three songs. And then, after an intermission, they came back on and performed once more. Adapting to the new mandate of covering their breasts, the dancers emerged wearing sizable dersimal adhesive bandages, but those eventually came loose as the perspiration took its course. Kellerman described the reaction of the women. He said they were, quote, stomping on the tabletop, shimming on top of the bar, clapping, shouting, screaming, or just quietly staring at the glistening, undulating male bodies. He then proceeded to interview several of the women. Joyce Cratch, who was seven months pregnant at the time, stated, quote, My husband told me to come. He believes in equality. Then a woman seated next to her added, quote, the men have had women dancers for years at the Rainbow Inn. Now we have something. Kimmelman observed as another Dundalk housewife who just happened to also be named Joyce, and she did request that her last name not be printed, she grabbed one of the go-go dancers' legs. She explained, quote, He was just shaking there right in front of me. I knew I had to grab something, so I reached out and held on. At another moment, she ran on stage and stuffed a dollar bill into the bass guitarist's bikini bottoms. Now, this was not as risque as it sounds. That's because he was wearing the bikini bottoms over black leotards. I guess, uh, you know, he lacked pockets. Juanita Roth, who was in her mid-30s, said her husband was home watching their kids. Quote, I've got two words for you. Liberation's great. She added, What's good for the goose is good for the gander. When two sisters were asked where their husbands were, they responded in unison, quote, home in the bedroom where they belong. 
April Fiedler, who was single, commented, quote, I never knew the male body was so sexy. One of her married friends added, quote, Yeah, husbands aren't sexy. The problem is that they all look the same. Many of the ladies were disappointed that Jeremiah Shasted, who April described as being, quote, the most gorgeous thing you ever saw, didn't dance in that earlier show, although he did arrive later. Mr. Shasted later told Kimmelman that, quote, It's great being a sex object. For years I used to beg for dates. Now I get offers all the time. Within a month of being cited by the Baltimore County Liquor Board, business at the Merritt House seemed to be quieting down. In a March 28, 1975 article in the Baltimore Sun, this is about six weeks after he issued the original rulings, board chairman has stated, quote, I was down at the Merritt House this past Sunday, and there were no more than 150 to 170 women in the place the whole night. He added, it was a fad. Now the novelty is wearing off. In that same article, Mr. Hess described how the liquor board had consulted with several attorneys to determine the best way to move forward. Quote, It was a ridiculous situation to be caught in, but we had to live within the rule until we could see if we could constitutionally change it. Well, there was no need for a constitutional change. Instead, the lawyers concluded that there was, quote, a difference in the anatomy of the male and female. Wow, that's a surprise. Anyway, as a result, the liquor board ruled that the male go-go dancers would no longer be required to cover their breasts. The headline of the article summed it up best, quote, but they no longer need band-aids. I just can't help but wonder what that hunk of a man, Jeremiah Shasted, looks like 48 years later. Is he really still getting a lot of dates? So here's a question for you. Who was the youngest man to ever serve as president of the United States? Now, if you're thinking John F. Kennedy, which is what I was taught when I was younger, you would be incorrect. He definitely was the youngest elected to the office, but he wasn't the youngest to serve. Clearly, whoever became president must have been vice president first and for whatever reason became president. Anyway, I'll let you ponder over that question for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Speaking of your automobile, you can't baby your car too much these days. Immediate attention to the little faults will keep your car rolling, add to its life and economy. Items such as having your spark plugs cleaned regularly, 
can do a great deal towards stretching your gasoline ration. It only takes a few minutes for an expert with special equipment to clean your spark plugs. And while he cleans them, he will examine and properly gap them. Ask your local car dealer, your serviceman, or any one of the thousands of Autolite spark plug dealers for plug check inspection service. It can increase your mileage as much as 12%, according to tests conducted by the American Automobile Association. If any of the plugs are found worn or faulty, replace them with new Autolite spark plugs. Autolite spark plugs are ignition engineered. They have proved to be dependable and long-lasting. That's why many builders of cars, trucks, and mighty war vehicles use Autolite spark plugs as original equipment. They know the name Autolite means precision manufacturing. That commercial for Autolite is from the March 21st, 1944 broadcast of the radio program Everything for the Boys. The show was designed to be a morale booster for our troops during World War II and big stars of the day, which included Ingrid Bergman, Greer Garson, Ginger Rogers, and Loretta Young, and so on, they would come on and perform in famous plays, and then later on in the series, uh, there would be some musical numbers. This particular episode included a performance of the play The Girl in the Reed, and it starred Ronald Coleman and Martha Scott. The last third of the episode included the reading of a letter that was penned by a soldier in a prisoner of war camp, and that was then followed by a shortwave radio conversation between the stars and two Canadian soldiers that were stationed in Naples, Italy. And as you just heard, the show was sponsored by Autolite Spark Plugs. The company began its life as the Fisher Manufacturing Company, and their main product line was electric starting and lighting for cars and motorboats, hence the name Autolite. In 1911, the company dropped the Fisher name and they reorganized as the Electric Autolite Company in Toledo, Ohio. But it wouldn't be until 1935 that the company president, that was Royce G. Martin, he would push the company into the manufacturing of spark plugs. With ceramic engineer Robert Twells heading the design team, they produced their first spark plug at their Fastoria, Ohio plant the following year which means that the company was relatively new to the spark plug game when they opted to sponsor the show, you know, everything for the boys. Autolite would continue to expand their product line, and it was sold to the Ford Motor Company in 1961. But the federal government filed an antitrust lawsuit against Ford, and that dragged on in the courts for years. Finally, in 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against Ford, and they sold Autolite to the Bendix Corporation the following year. Today, Autolite spark plugs are manufactured by the First Brands Group, and they just happen to own Trico wiper blades, Fram filters, and a number of other automotive parts suppliers. And now we're up to the segment that I've been calling Footnotes to History, and uh, these are just short stories that there's little more to tell about, so I'm just going to read them word for word. And here's the first one. And this appeared on page one of the Detroit Free Press on January 21st of 1933. The headline reads, Boy Hides Heroism in Fear of Spanking. Alma, January 20th. Because Hugh Hansen, seven years old, got his clothes wet and feared a spanking when he got home, he did not mention that he had saved the life of a playmate, Paul Cowles, the same age, who had broken through thin ice in Pine River while sliding. Hugh pulled Paul out and took him home, then sneaked quietly into his own house and hung up his clothes. 
Friday morning, Paul's mother called at the Hansen home to thank the boy for his heroism, and Mrs. Hansen heard of the incident for the first time. Next up, we have a story that appeared in the December 7, 1949 edition of the Akron Beacon Journal on page 38. The headline reads, Never apply in triplicate. Thad's fingerprints IQs don't match. Detroit, Michigan, United Press. Thaddeus Holowinski, 26, today regretted his enthusiasm for getting on the Detroit police force. Two years ago, he sent his brother Stanley, 30, to take the written examination for him. Stanley scored 98 and was given an intelligence quotient of 128. However, the application lapsed when Thaddeus failed to appear for a physical examination. Then Thaddeus took a crack at the written examination. He flunked with a 56 and had an IQ of 85. He sent Stanley back for another written test November 12th and his brother scored 107. Then Thaddeus sent Jan Humeniuk, 35, to take the physical examination for him. But authorities decided Thaddeus couldn't have an IQ of 128 one day and 85 another. And I love this part. They also knew he couldn't have three different sets of fingerprints. Thaddeus, Stanley, and Jan will be sentenced December 20th. And I did find the follow-up story for that. This is from the December 21st, 1949 publication of the Lansing State Journal on page 12. The headline is, Police Force Candidate Sentenced a $50 Fine. That's about $630 today. Detroit, December 21st, Associated Press. Thaddeus Holowinski ended up yesterday on the receiving end instead of the enforcing end of the law. He was fined $50 in traffic court. His brother, Stanley, a Michigan State College student, was placed on four months probation for posing as Thaddeus at a written examination for the police department. Jan Humeniak was also placed on probation for taking the police physical examination for Thaddeus. It was all an attempt to get Thaddeus on the force, the three admitted. And our third story comes from the December 3, 1952 publication of the Los Angeles Times, and this appeared on page 36. The headline reads, Cat quits after five years as food taster. London, December 2nd, Reuters. Whiskers, a seven-year-old ginger tomcat, has retired after five years' service as chief taster in a cat food factory. Whiskers ate his way into a full-time job when he was two years old. His owner, David Watkins, answered an advertisement for a cat food taster. After a medical examination, Whiskers found himself on the staff of a factory. Quote, We were paid a nominal amount for Whiskers' services, Watkins said. We used to go see him at the factory, and his employers paid our fares. He sampled every batch of food they made. He is still in beautiful condition, but I think his boss felt that Whiskers could do with a change. Whiskers today was back with the Watkins family playing with the children, Richard 6 and Teresa 3. The factory will give Whiskers a gold medal engraved, quote, to Whiskers for loyal service. Next up, we have a story from February 10th of 1955. This is from the Medill Record. Uh, that's in Oklahoma on page 9. The headline reads, False Radio News Report Sends Man on Frantic Drive. 
aftermath of a false or greatly exaggerated radio news report Thursday afternoon could have ended in tragedy for a Love County family. The report from a Texas radio station said that Charles Young, employee of a petty seismograph crew here, had been blinded in both eyes when a battery exploded. Mr. Young's father, who lives at Thackersville, heard the report and immediately made a very fast and anxious trip to Medill. When he reached the office of the seismograph company here, he was assured that there was nothing to the rumor. Actually, Young received a cut over his eye two days previously when an overhanging tree branch struck him in the eye while he was driving a company truck. He was given emergency treatment at the Medill Hospital Tuesday and dismissed. Although the injury was painful, it was not serious and did not impair his vision. The elder Mr. Young reached Medill without mishap, but drove at breakneck speed to do so. So great was his anxiety. And our last tidbit for today is from the November 11th, 1966 edition of the Manchester Evening News, and this appeared on page three. And I should mention it was written by Cynthia Lowry. The headline is Sound of Music 864 Times. I have to tell you, I've seen it a bunch of times, but not 864 times. Here we go. Have you ever seen a film more than once? Well, I must admit that I saw South Pacific twice and The King and I a few times. But a second viewing is never as enjoyable as the first. And however exciting the production, one always becomes slightly bored knowing how the story's going to end. At least that has always been my experience, but recently I met a remarkable lady who has seen a certain film no less than 864 times, establishing a record which has made her famous all over the world. The picture in question is the sound of music and the earnest and ever-loyal spectator, Mrs. Myra Franklin, a 47-year-old widow from Cardiff. Devon-born Mrs. Franklin, who is a grandmother but lives alone, her one son being in the RAF, has had her story told all over the globe, and her feat has become an item of amazement in her hometown. Quote, I feel that the film is a part of me, she says, and I always find it breathtaking on every occasion I see it. It really is magnificent and the outstanding motion picture of our time. The different expressions on the face of Julie Andrews are like the facets of a precious ruby which one turns in the light. They change all the time and she lives her role rather than acts it. But alas, unhappy days are ahead for Mrs. Franklin. The theater which has shown the film since April of last year and which gave her a free seat after her 57th visit is to change its program. What will Mrs. Franklin do? Quote, well, I've already written the script out three times, she told me, and now I intend setting it out again, describing everything in detail. I know all of it by heart. These words are obviously spoken with sadness and a heavy heart, however, although it is virtually certain that when she goes to see her relations in Plymouth at Christmas time, Mrs. Franklin will go see the sound of music which is showing in the town. She will probably not have a free ticket, but this will not matter. For Mrs. Franklin, it is sure to be a reunion with old friends in more ways than one, and what a tribute she'll be making to the off-maligned entertainment industry. I should say, if you've never seen The Sound of Music, you really should. 
It is a little bit dated, but it is a fun movie. So earlier in the podcast, I've asked you who was the youngest man to ever serve as president of the United States. Did you know the answer? Well, it was Teddy Roosevelt. He was sworn in as president on September 14th of 1901 after the assassination of President McKinley in Buffalo, New York. Now, the vice president during McKinley's first term was Garrett Hobart, but he passed away on November 21st, 1899. So when he sought re-election in 1900, McKinley, of course, was in need of a new vice president. Roosevelt, who was governor of New York at the time, he was a rising star in the Republican Party, so he was selected for the job. He was 42 years, 322 days old when he assumed the office of the presidency. Now compare that with JFK's age of 43 years, 236 days. So if I'm doing my math correctly, Roosevelt was 279 days younger than Kennedy was when he became president. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing all those stories. My personal favorite today was the story of the family needing the goat to rent the house. I stumbled across that one back in June, you know, shortly after I completed the last retrocast, and I just knew that one had to be included in this episode. Anyway, just a reminder, if you've enjoyed this episode or the podcast in general, I would greatly appreciate if you could share it with someone, you know, whether that's through Reddit, Facebook, X, you know, the site formerly known as Twitter, or by whatever means you think will help grow my audience. Whatever you can do to help spread the word, please be assured that it's greatly appreciated. It truly is. You can find the Useless Information Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to subscribe. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, so be sure to visit airwavemedia.com where you will find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts, not just in history, but also science, wellness, education, and the arts. Anyway, as always, thanks for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.